History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this first ever History Ghost Bump miniseries. Very exciting. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. On this miniseries, we are bringing you the Haunted Circus. Now, this is going to be a little different, Kelly, than one of our normal episodes. We're not going to have a moment in oddity or this month in history. Right. We'll still have our community stuff, welcoming people into the spooktacular crew and reading their emails and such. But we wanted this to be a little bit different. We've never even done a two-parter at History Goes Bump, so this is very different for us. I know, breaking new ground. We're going to have four episodes in this miniseries, and even if you can't listen to them in order or you miss one or something like that, they are standalone, so it's not like we're not going to leave you with a cliffhanger at the end of one that you got to listen to the next one or whatever. Exactly. They're going to be their own standalone episodes, but they're all part of the Haunted Circus. We have gathered so much research and audio to share with you that if we didn't go with a miniseries, we would find ourselves the Dan Carlin of Haunted History. And for those who don't know, Carlin produces the Hardcore History podcast, and many of those episodes run four or five hours long. That's a long time to sit in the closet. (laughs) Recording. (laughs) That is a long time to hang out in the closet. Even if you don't love the circus, we think you'll enjoy these episodes, and they have some great haunts to go with the history we're going to share. The circus holds a special place for me. I went to the circus for my birthday every year, starting when I was seven, and I joined my young niece several times as an adult. I love the circus, and that is why we're doing this miniseries. This is dedicated to all the circus performers and sideshow freaks that have ever lived and who will live in the future. Thank you for your special gift to the world. Kelly, do you love the circus? I do love the circus. (laughs) Did you go when you were a kid? I went several times when I was a child, and then as an adult, I would take my boys. It was really cool. We moved to Colorado when I was six, and October was the circus season for Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey to come to Denver. They always came to Denver in October. They came just to celebrate your birthday. You know that. That's what I thought it was. (laughs) I thought they're coming just for me. So that was a tradition that my parents started. We'd go to the circus for my birthday. That's awesome. Yeah, and it was probably the first place that I got to see a lot of these kinds of performances and stuff, and I was just mesmerized. And for you and I, for people who don't know, one of our favorite movies, and it really holds a special place for us, is The Greatest Showman. Absolutely. And I remember sitting in the movie theater, watching it up on the big screen, and I felt like I was that seven-year-old kid again at the circus, just enthralled with what I was watching on the screen. It was just an amazing movie for the stuff that it had in it, the messages that it was sending out, and the music. Just incredible. You are going to hear various voices throughout this mini-series. Debbie Farenbrook is a listener, and she contacted us in January of 2020 with a suggestion. She thought we should look into the Al Ringling Mansion in Baraboo, Wisconsin. As her email continued with revelations that she had worked with the circus and that she had connections and that we should check out Sarasota as well, this miniseries began to take shape. As we met and interviewed people and got to tour the Ringling Estate and Circus Museum here in Florida, we started to wonder how to go about organizing the miniseries, keeping in mind that we don't cover places that don't have a legend or haunt connected to them. We think what we've come up with will satisfy all of the listeners. Nearly everyone has a memory that features the circus. Perhaps it was the first time you tried cotton candy. Or maybe the circus was the first time you saw a clown. The circus was loud and colorful, but most of all, it was magical. The animals were not in cages and they were performing tricks. 
human beings could fly through the air with the greatest of ease or clamber across a thin wire. During times of turmoil, the circus was an escape. And in the past, when the circus came through a small town, it was like a dream. People would get to see animals in person that they may have only read about. Giant elephants and wild cats would parade down their main streets, heading to giant tents on the edge of town. Bright and colorful posters would decorate the town square. The circus was for everyone, regardless of class or age, whether it was as a performer, worker, or guest. The circus was a beautiful show, full of energy, and some of that energy continues on in the afterlife. Join us on this first episode in the Haunted Circus miniseries as we cover an overview of the history of the circus and discuss one of the biggest tragedies in circus history, the Hartford Circus Fire, and share the haunts connected to that event. The circus, or some kind of performance done in a circle or ring featuring acrobatics, amazing feats of strength, races, and animals, has been around for centuries. Acrobatic performances more than likely date back to the dawn of human history. The first technical circuses would probably be the Roman circus dating back to 500 BC and the Greek Hippodrome in 203 AD. These were nothing like the circuses to come and featured chariot races, gladiator combats, and horse races. Chinese acrobats showed up around 2,000 years ago, and many people in Asia would practice things like juggling, hand balancing, and acrobatics for fun during the long winter months when they couldn't farm. These would all lead up to the beginning of the circus as we know it today. The person who would create the modern circus and be known as the father of the modern circus was Philip Astley. Philip Astley was born in England, and he grew to love horses. He left home at the age of 17 and joined Colonel Elliott's 15th Light Dragoons, where he learned to become an excellent horse rider, and he started trying out tricks. He began performing shows in open fields featuring his acrobatic riding skills in 1768. The following year, he opened his riding school, and he popularized riding around in a circle ring that would become the standard of the circus. He didn't create this, but he did make it popular. Debbie shares about Astley here. The modern circus was actually started by a man named Philip Astley, who was in England. And actually, the word circus is a Latin word for circle or ring. Philip Astley was the first person to develop the act to be in a ring. And he found that the 42-foot diameter of the ring was the easiest for a galloping horse and for someone to stand up on. He started to perform in uh, 1768 is when he started that first circus. The first circus animal, and for a long time, the only circus animal, or one of the few circus animals, I should say, was the horse. So Philip Astley was the first person to bring other circus acts, what we consider circus acts, into an arena and put on a show. And that might include jugglers, clowns. They even had tightrope walkers back in those days. Astley also didn't use the term circus for his equestrian acts. His rival, Charles Dibden, came up with that when he opened the Royal Circus in 1782. Astley's amphitheater featured a platform, seats, and a roof inside a wooden building. It would eventually close in 1893 and be demolished. This setup would become the standard for circuses for many years. Astley definitely seems to be the father of the circus. In 1782, Astley got some competition from equestrian Charles Hughes. Hughes had worked with Astley and formed a partnership with Charles Dibden, and they opened the Royal Circus and Equestrian Philharmonic Academy. The term circus would start being used after this to refer to this new form of entertainment. The circus would spread to America with one of Hughes's students, John Bill Ricketts. Deb explains a little bit about Ricketts here. John Bill Ricketts, he was a fascinating man. He was English, and he came over here in, uh, I think it was right around the beginning of 1792, and he landed in Philadelphia, which at the time was the largest city in America, and he started the Ricketts Art Pentathlon and Amphitheater. There's a mouthful for you. <laughs> 
And he started it as a riding school. And then in 1793, he put on his first circus performance, which then included trick riding, jugglers, clowns. He kept adding things as he went along. But in that first season, George Washington came to the circus. Oh, wow. And uh, I don't know if everybody knows, but George Washington was considered an excellent equestrian. He looked very good on the back of a horse. They became friends, and then in 1797, he put on a retirement performance for George Washington. George Washington was retiring from the presidency that year. And then it really gets kind of interesting that in 1799, the Apple Theater burnt down to the ground, and he decided that he wanted to go back to England. So he gathered up all his equipment and his animals and put them on a boat, and as they were heading towards the West Indies, a French privateer boarded the boat and took over. So basically, as you know, privateers back in those days were basically pirates. Sure. So they took all his equipment and horses and then dropped him off on Guadalupe. While he was there in Guadalupe, he was able to put on enough performances so that he had enough money to buy back some of his horses and equipment and return to England in 1800. And then on his way to England, the ship sinks. Unfortunately, they were all lost at sea. Oh, wow. To give you an idea of just how famous John Bell Ricketts was in colonial America, Gilbert Stuart, who was a very famous portrait painter back in the day, painted his portrait. It actually was unfinished at the time. It's actually displayed from time to time at the uh, National Gallery of Art in D.C. Yeah, I think I have seen that one. It actually looks kind of cool because it's almost like he's coming out of this mist with like a horse kind of that isn't been painted or anything. And he's just kind of coming out of this mist with just his head. Yeah, it's sort of half his body and you can see the horse and it was his favorite horse that he had. Okay. And the horse is sort of right behind his shoulder. Yeah, it's a pretty cool picture. It's almost neater that it's not finished. Yeah, I agree. Ricketts Circus was in a wooden arena that had no roof and featured a ring that was filled with dirt and sawdust. 800 people could watch the equestrian performances. After his season in Philadelphia, Ricketts moved on to New York City, near the Battery. He would also start the first Canadian circus in Montreal in 1797. Ricketts spent most of his time in Philly, but he brought his circus to places throughout New England and down into Baltimore. In 1799, Ricketts' circus would come to an end for the same reason as many to follow. Fire. Another British man would start a circus in America, and this was equestrian Philip Lailson. In 1802, he would introduce Mexico to the circus. Up until this point, the only animals in the circus were horses. In 1796, Captain Jacob Crowninshield brought the first elephant to America, and he began displaying it. And keep in mind, he's just displaying an elephant. This, there's no tricks involved here or anything right. like that. Back across the pond, the circus was being introduced to Russia in 1816 by French equestrian Jacques Tournier. His sons continued the circus after his death and eventually took it into China and India and eventually America. Another French equestrian, Louis Soyer, brought the circus to China for the first time. He would also find many Chinese acrobats to bring back to Europe to introduce new acts like plate spinning, diabolo juggling, hoop diving, and perch pole balancing. And Kelly, for people who don't know what that diabolo or diabolo juggling is, it's when they throw those, I don't know what you call them, like wooden spools or whatever, or balls hoops. up in the air, hoops, and catch them with the ropes and spin them around it and stuff like that. We've seen that at Epcot. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, and it's a part of a lot of the Cirque du Soleil that I've seen, too. Right. The circus that came to Brooklyn, New York on April 10th, 1871, featured a big top tent with 60 performers and could seat 5,000 people. This was P.T. Barnum's Circus Museum and Menagerie which he had started with the help of William Cameron Coop. The museum part was an exhibition of oddities, both human and animal, and would come to be known as the Sideshow. The Tented Circus was not how it all started for Phineas T. Barnum, though. He grew up from humble beginnings, and his father died when Barnum was a teenager, leaving the family destitute. Barnum was not one for manual labor, so he schemed any way he could to make money from selling lottery tickets to being a shop clerk to selling Bibles. Now P.T. Barnum would grow to become many things, and some of this is controversial today. Putting people on exhibit is not something we would do today, but for the time, Barnum was giving people who would have been tossed aside by society a chance to be famous and make money, and many of his people would become very famous and wealthy. Barnum was a politician, writer, lecturer, intellectual, philanthropist, an entrepreneur, but most of all, a showman. 
In the 19th century, he was the most famous man in America. And he's one of my favorite historical figures. I know he is. I adore him. Absolutely. And I actually don't have a problem with him doing the sideshow. I think most people know the sideshow is one of my most favorite things. And when I use the term freak, it's not what I consider to be a bad term. It's a term of endearment for me. Yes, because I am a freak and I love (laughs) freaks. So I am as well. His first venture into creating a show was buying the rights to exhibit Joyce Heff, an elderly African-American slave in 1835. Barnum claimed that she had been President Washington's nursemaid, and that made her something like 161 years old. (laughs) Good grief. She was both blind and paralyzed, but this didn't stop her from making herself into an engaging attraction. She, I think, really loved what she was doing. She died on February 19, 1836, and an autopsy revealed she was more likely in her 80s. This was his first attraction and would not be the first time he would use trickery to make a buck off a curious public. Barnum would redeem himself for this and the purchase of three other slaves by becoming an avowed abolitionist, and he would support women's rights and people of color's rights. In 1841, Barnum bought Scudder's American Museum, which was located in the lower Manhattan neighborhood of Five Points. This is present-day Chinatown. And I'm kicking myself for us I not going know. down there and trying to find the location of where it had been. We just had so many things on our agenda yeah. and we couldn't do it all. And this, we just didn't even have this in our wheelhouse. It at was the time. not in the wheelhouse. No. <sighs> the name was changed to Barnum's American Museum and featured natural history collections, wax figures, a zoo, theater, museum exhibits, oddities, curiosities, and a freak show. This place had everything from a beluga whale in an aquarium to Grizzly Adams trained bears to the Fiji Mermaid, which is where he got his start when it came to exhibiting oddities. And I loved Grizzly Adams. <laughs> I did too. I used to I watch that as a kid. I watching it all yeah. the time. I'd actually beg to eat my dinner in the kitchen so I could watch the TV when it was on. I don't remember. I think we probably just had the TV on when we were eating because the TV was right close where the dinner table uh, was. So Yeah, ours was not. And so I had to sit in a separate area at the kitchen counter to be able to watch TV while I was eating. <laughs> so if I was good, if I did extra chores, I could eat dinner and watch Grizzly Adams yeah. <laughs> instead of sitting at the dining table. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. As we all know, it, it turns out that the mermaid was actually a mummified monkey's torso attached to a large fish's tail. But a lot of people thought this was the real deal. And actually, I don't know if it's the Fiji mermaid or a likeness of it is at the Birdcage Theater in Tombstone. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I did not know that either. And then I was listening to your Haunted Holiday, their podcast, and she was talking about it. And I went, do you know the story behind that Fiji mermaid? (laughs) And she didn't. And so I explained that. And so I was like, wow, I wonder if that is the actual Fiji mermaid. I I don't know, because we're going to find out something happens here. And so it's like, I don't know if that would be the actual one that was there before. This museum would get 15,000 visitors a day, and more people visited it between 1841 and 1868 than the population of America at the time. It was a popular place. (laughs) Absolutely. This museum would launch the Freak Show. So now would be a good time to talk about its origins. Barnum didn't create the exhibition of oddities. Traveling fairs had exhibited sideshow attractions for hundreds of years. Barnum knew that the most popular attractions would prove to be human and animal oddities. And what he did that brings him much of the credit for sideshows is made it a real show. It was all about the marketing. And obviously what we are referring to as oddities we all know today are medical conditions. The most famous and first would be the Siamese twins Chang and Ng Bunker. They were born in Siam in 1811 and arrived in America in 1829 with a manager who took them on tour. Eventually, they would leave the manager and tour on their own. They did work with Barnum and appeared at his American Museum, but he never was their manager. Sometimes people equate him with them quite a bit. They were just kind of hired workers for him. Sure. The next famous sideshow act would be General Tom Thumb, who was really named Charles Stratton. He was a little person whom Barnum convinced to join his cast of Sideshow Freaks when he was just 11 years old. The two men would become lifelong friends and were actually distant cousins, and Tom Thumb would begin his career in 1843. 
gaining so much fame that he visited with Queen Victoria three times, and his wedding in 1863 became the event of the year in New York City. That was like you wanted a ticket to go to Tom Thumb's wedding. Very cool. Thumb died at the age of 45 in 1883 and never grew taller than 2 feet 11 inches. General Tom Thumb would just be the first of many little people to gain fame as sideshow freaks. There would be Major Might, Harold Piat, and Anita the Living Doll. They would all come to call themselves Lilliputian, and some would take on specialties like the world's smallest strongman or smallest daredevil. On the other extreme were the giants. We've talked about Robert Wadlow from Alton, Illinois on a couple of episodes. He was the world's tallest man. Famous tall sideshow acts were Patrick O'Brien, the Irish giant, and Sam Taylor, the Ilkston giant. There were also the bearded ladies and dog-faced boys. These people had a condition called hypertrichosis and would grow hair and excess all over the body, particularly on the face. Some of these famous ladies were Alice Bounds, the bear lady, Annie Jones, and Leonine, the lion-faced lady. On the male side, there was Jojo, the dog-faced boy. There were other extremes as well, with very skinny people and morbidly obese people. And if people don't think that's entertaining, why does my 600-pound life do so well on television, Kelly? Very true. So we still have that going on today. There was even one woman who took great pride in being dubbed the ugliest woman in the world. Her name was Mary Ann Bevan, and she developed acromegaly in her early 30s, which caused her to have facial deformities. After her husband died, sideshows became a way for her to support her family. And she would challenge anyone who tried to say they were uglier than her. I mean, she was very protective of that title. I remember. Tom Norman was the English counterpart to Barnum, and he wrote, You could indeed exhibit anything in those days. Yes, anything from a needle to an anchor, a flea to an elephant, a bloater you could exhibit as a whale. It was not the show, it was the tale that you told. Norman would be the final exhibitor of John Merrick, the elephant man. So this gives a little overview of the sideshow, and as we all know... Other performers would join creating acts like fire-eating, sword-swallowing, and snake-charming. The freak shows were clearly an essential part of the early modern circus. And as I said, one of my favorite. And I would be a (laughs) snake-charmer. You would be a (laughs) snake-charmer. And for uh, people who've known me for a while, I have friends that are sword-swallowers and such. So I know how they go about learning how to do that and everything. It's, It's an amazing thing to learn to do. So Barnum had all these sideshow acts in his museum, along with everything else, and all of this would come to an abrupt end. The museum building was five stories high and would burn completely on March 3rd, 1868. The building was a total loss, and Barnum was devastated. Most people thought he would quietly retire, but two men, William C. Coop and Dan Costello, asked Barnum to join them in financing and promoting their circus. They needed his name, and Barnum was happy to give it to them and jump into the traveling circus. And this is what opened in Brooklyn in 1871, as we mentioned earlier. After this, that circus traveled for six months throughout the Northeast and used 245 horses to pull 100 wagons. Wow, that's amazing. That is how they got the circus around back then. That was your traveling circus. The American traveling circus began in the early 19th century. The first man to use a full canvas tent was Joshua Purdy Brown, and he did this in 1825. A cattle dealer named Hakalia Bailey was getting a start at about this same time. He had an African elephant that he was touring around and he started adding other exotic animals to it so that he had a traveling menagerie. Both Brown and Bailey were from Summers, New York, and this area would launch many of the same ventures that eventually joined forces and formed the Zoological Institute, a trust that controlled 13 menageries and three affiliated circuses. This is how many of the American circuses started. They were run by businessmen with traveling zoos. The European circuses were mainly performing families. Eventually, the American circuses would be this too, with circus performing running for generations and families. And you'll hear more about that in future episodes. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting how the American circus and the European circuses were so different from each other. Right. We were more heavily involved with the animals. They were more with the acrobats. And of course, the two are going to crash into each other eventually. You put your chocolate in my peanut butter. Yeah. Wild West shows were another version of the circus. I don't think a lot of people think about that. Right. Exactly. And I was I, surprised. I, yeah. I didn't put the two together initially. I did not until we went through the circus museum and they were had the history up there on the wall. And right. one block of that history was Wild West shows. And I went, well, you know what? Makes sure. sense. Yeah. 
they were basically traveling vaudeville performances. The first show started in 1870 with the most famous ones being hosted by, of course, Buffalo Bill Cody. And these are the ones that I'm more familiar with, especially coming from Colorado. We do a lot with Buffalo Bill Cody there and have his grave there and everything. These shows would continue until 1920. Performers ranged from trick riders to outlaws to shooting stars like Annie Oakley and Calamity Jane to Native Americans to wild animals. Buffalo Bill's shows would tour Europe eight times as well. Other Wild West shows were Texas Jack's Wild West, Beho Gray's Wild West, Pawnee Bill's Wild West. They all pretty much had that same Wild <laughs> West. <laughs> Jones Brothers' Buffalo Ranch Wild West, Buckskin Joe Hoyt, and the 101 Ranch Wild West show, which we covered in episode 101. If you guys have not listened to that yet, I encourage you to do that. Adam Forpaugh was an American entrepreneur, and he was about to burst onto the circus scene in 1865. He would become a major rival to Barnum and Coop's circus. Forpaugh started his life in poverty, just like Barnum. He grew up in Philadelphia, but ran away to Ohio and got started in the livestock business. He made his fortune selling horses to the government during the Civil War and was considered an expert judge of horses. It would be a bad debt that would get Forpaugh into the circus. He sold a bunch of horses to a circus owner who did not pay the bill. So Forpaugh made a deal in which he got part ownership of the circus. And may I just say, this Forpaugh guy had some amazing mutton chops. <laughs> yeah, if you guys get a chance to see a picture of him, of course, I'll put up some images up on Instagram. So I'll see if I can find an old one of him. He had some sideburn mutton chops going on big time. Until this morning, we had some mutton chops in this family. I was about to start calling Mia Forepaw because, you know, she kind of matched right. with him. With I her shouldn't little... have trimmed her hair before taking a straight on shot so everybody could see that. <laughs> her she, little mutton chops. She definitely had mutton chops going on on her <laughs> neck and around her jawline. <laughs> Forepaw added a lot to the circus by incorporating Wild West shows into a circus, and he was the first to separate the menagerie into its own separate circus tent. So churchgoers wouldn't have to be scandalized by performances. He also was the first to hire a black elephant trainer. Yeah, there were a lot of black people that would work with the circus, but they got to do a lot of the grunt work, doing a lot of the digging, doing the posts and stuff like that. So this would be the first gentleman to be brought on board to actually do something significant. And elephant training was a real significant thing at that time. Absolutely. And as we heard when we were speaking with Deb, you know, there there wasn't really any demarcation between race, religion, Mm -hmm. sex, anything. Everybody was just part of the whole family. Yeah, the only line of demarcation really was performers or workers. Exactly. And some people are probably like, what do you mean scandalized churchgoers? Well, guys, think back to the late 1800s, the Victorian era. These people are wearing collared dresses up their necks and they couldn't show their ankles. I mean, we had ladies had to go up separate stairs stairs so you wouldn't be scandalized by seeing their ankles. (laughs) Well, what are they wearing in the circus? Not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot of clothes. It was very racy. A lot of people probably went because they found it titillating to watch these very, very fit and healthy looking people wearing very little clothing, running around doing somersaults and flipping through the air and all kinds of stuff. And you can imagine that churchgoers were like, oh, my eyes, I'm getting my the eyes. or something, you know. <laughs> so he thought if I take the menagerie and put it somewhere else, I can still get their business because they can go Certainly. see the zoo. And then the people who are OK with seeing some racy stuff can come into the Just other town. broaden it a bit. And I will say there was some racy stuff that went with the circus, too. We haven't talked a lot about it, but part of the sideshow could also be hoochie coochie shows. And that's what they called them. Oh, my. So there could be semi-nudity or full nudity for those kinds of things, too. Forpaw and his partner, Pogey O'Brien, would invest in another circus, and they would combine and split the circus assets up into two circuses, the Dan Rice Circus and the Great National Circus. That didn't last long, and eventually Forpaw split off, taking just the Dan Rice Circus. The circus that Forpaw ran would be the biggest rival to Barnum, but he lacked the showmanship of Barnum. He was more of a businessman. He wasn't much of the show guy. Gotcha. Throughout the 1870s and 1880s, the two men would sign truces that divided up the nation between them so they wouldn't be performing in the same places. So it's like, you stay over on the East Coast, I'll be over here in the Midwest, that That kind of thing. That sounds fair. They would combine their efforts and have their circuses perform together, however, twice. 
once in Philly and once at Madison Square Gardens, which we got to see while we were in New we York. We sure did. And I didn't know at the time, but Barnum was one of the people who helped to fund building that thing. Yeah, that's so cool. And that actually is where Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey will launch most of their circuses when they start a season. They start at Madison Square Garden. That's right. By 1889, Four Paw was done and sold the bulk of his circus to James Bailey and his railroad cars to the Ringlings. Now we're starting to see these names that are all coming together. They are. And speaking of railroad cars, let's flip back to the 1870s again. The use of horse-drawn wagons was becoming a real issue, and so William Coop talked to Barnum about using trains to move the circus. So in 1872, the circus train became a thing. Circuses up to this point had also just been one ring had also just been one ring events, and Coop added a second ring. This meant that the canvas tent was going to need to grow. So the tents grew, and then more rings would be added until some circuses featured seven rings. In 1874, Coop and Barnum built the Hippodrome in New York, which would become Madison Square Garden. By 1875, Coop was done with the circus. So we just mentioned a Hakalia Bailey, who started one of the earliest American circuses with an elephant. His nephew was Frederick Bailey and James Bailey would take a surname from Frederick after the man took him under his wings when he was a teenager and made him his assistant with circus advertising. Bailey was just 22 in 1869 when he joined forces with James Cooper and started the Cooper and Bailey Circus. This circus would travel through Polynesia and down into Australia. Bailey would be the first circus showman to have electric lights on the circus grounds. He sold tickets for a tour of the generator that powered the lights, and it was a main point in his advertising. Yeah, so some people are probably like, why did he take this other guy's name and that kind of thing? Bailey had been an orphan, and so when he basically kind of ran away to be with the circus and got under the wings of this Frederick Bailey, he just really loved the man. And so since he didn't have a family really to claim, he decided he wanted that name. Sure, I love that. And of course, now it's world famous forever. In 1881, James Bailey and P.T. Barnum became partners and started the Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth. This would be America's first three-ring circus. And one of the reasons why they decided that they needed to launch into having another ring was not only because they wanted to bring more people in and make a bigger tent, but a lot of people kept getting up and moving their seats because with just the one ring, it was hard for them to see from certain areas. And so they'd get up and want to get a better view and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Now, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to complain about a three-ring circus because it's going to get to the point where they make sure the performances all start and end at the same time. And for those of us who've been to a modern circus that is generally a three-ring circus, it's hard to watch everything that's going on. So people started complaining, I can't see it all. But Barnum was like, heck no, we are trying to get as much going here as we possibly can. (laughs) Keep it going, keep it going. Complain all you want, we're keeping the three-ring circus. The show added Jumbo the Elephant in 1882, and he would be a big-time attraction until he was killed when he was hit by the circus train. It was a big tragedy and it was a big blow monetarily for Barnum because the minute they brought Jumbo on, their profits just skyrocketed. Everybody right. wanted to see. He was a huge, huge elephant. Right. So Barnum being ever the businessman that he was and the showman, he said, okay, well, let's act quick here. We're going to stuff the skin and we're going to keep the skeleton and articulate it. And those went into the sideshow tent then. Right. I remember. And today, I believe you still can see Jumbo the Elephant somewhere. I think his his bones and hide are still somewhere. I'm not for sure. Don't quote me on that, but I think he's still <laughs> around. Barnum died of a stroke in 1891, leaving behind a second wife and two of his four daughters who were still alive. Bailey took the circus over to Europe after that and taught them how to have a traveling circus. This helped the tented circus to become a thing at the turn of the 20th century. He returned to America in 1902 and discovered some new competition from the Ringling Brothers. They were five brothers who founded their circus in Baraboo, Wisconsin in 1884, and they were immensely successful. They had already purchased shares of the Four Paw Sells Brothers Circus at this point. Two of our episodes will be dedicated to the Ringlings, so we will discuss their personal histories later and more about their formation of their circus. Bailey died young at the age of 58 in 1906, and his widow sold the circus to the Ringlings in 1907. The Ringling Circus and the Barnum and Bailey Circus would remain separate until 1919 when they would combine to what we know today. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, greatest show on earth if you want to say it all together the way you're supposed to. European circuses would reach their peak between the two world wars. Now might be a good time to share how the circus traveled by train, and the best way to do this is to share our experience with the Circus Museum down here in Sarasota. 
Virginia Harshman walked us through this immense model of the Howard Brothers Circus, which is a three-fourth inch to the foot scale replica of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus circa the 1920s. And Virginia Harshman is the PR person for the Ringling Museum and that whole complex down here in Sarasota. So it was such a treat that Debbie had set this up for us. She took us on a personal tour through the Circus Museum. We went into Cotizan, which is John Ringling's mansion, which will come in a future episode. We went through the uh, museum that they have there of art because John Ringling was a big time art collector. So it was just so cool to be able to go through with her. And this model was the coolest scale model I have ever seen. Absolutely. It was incredible. It was huge. We took lots of pictures. We have them up on Instagram and such. And for it being a huge model, then you had to think in your brain, this is what it looked like when the tented circus was in its full form. And I mean, it took up a ton of space. They had to have a lot of space on the outside of town for yeah, it. It was really incredible. And it was such a special day. I mean, it was just fantastic. And it was so sweet that Deb was the one who set that up for us. Exactly. So what you guys are going to hear here is an immersive experience because that's the way this model is. You go in there, you got the circus music, you got the crowd sounds, the animal sounds. It went from day to night so that you could see how it was lit up. And you're going to hear Virginia describing what each of these tents, because there were a lot of tents that they would set up, what each one was used for, right. and that kind of thing. Let's step into the model. That is Howard there. Okay. He is still alive. He lives in Sarasota half a year and in Knoxville the other half. Um, this is massive. Uh, this my is gosh, my sister. The life of the tent is The setting is Knoxville, Tennessee, which is where Howard grew up as a child when he first fell in love with the circus. Uh, it showcases the heyday of the Tented Circus, which was 1918 to 1938. And uh, the lights would go off and on to, to change from day to night as we walk through. But uh, Howard started building this when he was young. Uh, he was an engineer by education. He owned some big foreign company. He got very, very wealthy, so he was able to buy us this building. You'll notice the beautiful floors out there. Wow, thanks. And Howard's company. Well, great. And uh, yeah, it's, and it would uh, come into town. Uh, they needed 60 acres to set up the tension circus, so the advance man would go ahead and find the spot and do the uh, postering, plastering posters all over so everyone knew the circus was coming. And uh, they would show up, set up, do two shows, tear down and leave within 24 hours. Wow, that's just a When you see how much stuff there is, it's truly amazing. And in World War One, the U.S. Army consulted with John Reeling uh, on how to move stuff fast. And stuff, yeah, because he was the expert on logistics and uh, it's called the Howard Brothers Circus because when Howard had gotten home long in his process he contacted Ringling, I'm not sure who owned it then, and said I'd like to put your name on building this model circus, can I put your name on it? And they said he no. So, yeah, so he called it the Howard Brothers Circus, his name is Howard and he jokes and says they did me a real favor because he hand letters all of the wagons and everything. That he would, it was much easier to put Howard Brothers Circus That's on there. That's quite true. There are. Um, Little screens in here showing the actual what it would have looked like in the day. Yeah, the Neat. actual footage and uh, Howard constructed uh, this from uh, video like that, from photographs. Many of the people who appear in this are real people. There was a group came through one day and ran into the curator and they had the photograph of the doctor down there. And that was their like great great grandfather or some relative. <laughs> who they knew, you know, was a doctor with the circus, and there was the, the vignette of the exact same photo they had. Wow. Ringling Brothers oh, were really nice. from Baraboo, Wisconsin, and there were five brothers that were involved in the circus. And uh, their father was a harness maker and a German immigrant. And uh, there's a couple different stories about how they actually got interested. One was that a circus came to town, and uh, the father did harness work for them, and in return, they, the family was given tickets. The boys went to the circus, fell in love with it, said, we need to do this, and started their own circus, which literally was like a dog and pony show. <laughs> and it kind of grew, and they hauled it around on horse-drawn wagons, and then as it grew a little bit more, eventually oh, they would put it on rails, and uh, then it really took off because they were able to visit you know, small towns all across America. And uh, they ended up buying out 11 major circuses within the, wow. their lifetime, yeah. Uh, the first one was um, Yankee... That's Robinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and they teamed up with him and then he died within the first year that they had teamed oh, up and so they took over his circus yeah we uh, actually when we go to the other room we have a poster thank you robinson sir. really yes it's one of the new things that's on display they would have to find a really big open spot. 60 acres. Wow. Yeah. wow. 60 acres. Look at all the different tents. And so they had, it looks like different tents for this is where we eat. Right. This is where you're living. The dining tent is down there and there's a red side and a blue side. The only uh, differentiation in the circus was performers or workers. It wasn't done along racial lines or male, female, anything like that. It was just performers and workers. And yes, there is a tent for everything. There is a, a medical tent. Uh, the bike. <laughs> there is a, uh, a barber uh, tent where people are getting their hair cut, shaves, uh, places to fix the equipment, places to just relax. Yeah, one of the one of the things they used to call it was the the city without a zip code because yeah, you had everything sense. here. Another interesting thing I see next door is the tickets that they took for the last tent show in 1956. Yes. <laughs> I love this vignette down here. It's the sea elephant. They had this sea elephant named Goliath that we actually just found some really, really old film that he's in it. Oh, wow. Like kissing his trainer. And he's humongous. He's like three and a half tons. And they traveled around with this sea lion in a tank of water and they fed him 150 pounds of fish a day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, how in the like, world? You think about like loading your seven-year-old in the car, how difficult that is. <laughs> yeah. Imagine traveling around with a seal of it. And all the food for him. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Well, we used to get all the food that we had for our animals, and we had up to 250 on one unit one year. It's all brought in fresh every We have purchasers okay. that, a purchaser that did nothing but order all the hay, the grain, uh, loaves of bread, freshly baked, unsliced for the elephants, because that's their favorite treat. It would all get sent the day that, you know, when we arrived. And we always made sure that the animals stayed in tents most of the time. Okay. There were some venues that were big enough, like the Astrodome and some of these other places, you could put the animals at one end and still have the circus at the other. But most of them, the animals were still under tent. So one of the things is the tents were always up before the animals arrived. The animals did not have to sit around for anything. As soon as the train arrived, the animals came off. They walked, and that, which was good exercise for them. We would do the elephant walk, and then they would be home. The circus animals were the best mentally and physically stimulated animals because they went to different oh, places all the yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. We had five full-time veterinarians. Well, when the train guy was here, Peggy was telling him, he's like, well, how are the animals treated? And she said, the elephants rode behind the engine because that was the smoothest ride. All the animals did. Yeah, and she talked wow. about the people were at the back where it was... Bumpy. <laughs> but the animals came first. Yeah. The first cars were always the animals, but you, because of when you get into different train yards, they, you never knew how the train was going to get cut, which means, you know, you might, they cut it up in different places to make it fit. Okay. So me personally, I never knew where I was going to be when I when we were going to leave, but you always knew the animals were going to be in the front. The other reason the animals were always in front, it was not only the smoothest ride, but in general, uh, in the majority of cases, any derailments were always behind the tenth car. Oh, wow. oh, okay. So they knew that the animals were safe for riding up front. Well, if you think back in this time especially because you didn't see these kinds of animals so that's really your big ticket Absolutely. item yeah. and in fact it was almost a hundred years before the first zoo and when you were talking about animals this is the menagerie tent which was literally a traveling zoo wow and this is how people were able to see these animals that were in, you know living in the middle of indiana or somewhere likely had not seen anything like this before. no so what an incredible experience. And I love the kangaroos back there <laughs> in their yeah. wagon. The interesting thing about the model, too, is, is that like the calliope, the ticket wagon, um, you'll actually see the life-size ones of those oh, God. on the tour. So I love yes, calliopes. The, yeah, we have one in the store and one in the other one as well. Bathroom tent, necessary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now people are like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, think about it. You need yeah. it. <laughs> you gotta have one. And this is the big top. 
This took Howard 18 years to build. Oh, wow. Yeah, he worked on this. That's just amazing. There's a lot going on in there. I mean, you wouldn't think it would have, like, live action, too. Oh, yeah. That it is so starts cool. starts things spin around. Did you? Oh, sure. But he gave an exemption to the circus because he knew America, he said America needs uh, some place to, to forget about the war and, you know, yeah. fantasy. So he gave, at that time, priority to the circus contracts. Neat. <laughs> had no idea. Yeah, when we traveled, anytime we entered into a new railroad's territory, we have to switch out engines. We weren't allowed to take them. And we, Mr. Fell owned all the train cars, but he didn't own the engines. Okay. So if we went from North, uh, Northern Pacific to, to you know, L&N, we'd have to wait and get switched out. Interesting. The golden age of the circus would belong to the Ringling Brothers. When the last Ringling brother, John, died in 1936, his nephew, John Ringling North, became the director of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Combined Shows, Incorporated. Under his direction, the Tenet Circus would come to an end in 1956, and the circus would move to venues like coliseums and stadiums that were air-conditioned. North ran the circus until 1967, and then he sold it to Israel and Irvin Feld. In 1982, Kenneth Feld took over for his father, and the circus has been under his direction since then, up until its closure in May 2017. The Ringling Circus was closed after 146 years. That's incredible. Talk but about a long run. That was <laughs> a very long run. And of course, that's the one I hold dear to my heart, the one that is under Kenneth Feld, because it actually, it was under the Feld family, and then it came under Kenneth Feld in that time period of when I started to go see it as a kid. But the circus was not done. It continues on in other forms, particularly in Europe. The Big Apple Circus started in 1977, and Guy La Liberté started Cirque du Soleil in Quebec in 1984. And probably a lot of people have seen a Cirque du Soleil show. They are amazing. They certainly are. And, well, Kelly, we have a little bit of news. It was shared with us, and I thought it was something that we wouldn't be able to share because it wasn't out in the public arena, arena yet. <laughs> out but in it the is, ether. <laughs> but it is now. And also somebody that I'm going to be interviewing in a future episode who owns the Owl Ringling Mansion had mentioned something about it. The Ringling Circus is coming back, folks. Woohoo! That's so exciting. <laughs> I am so happy. I am so happy. I can't even tell you. So I don't know exactly when, but they are taking auditions for performers. So I'm thinking it's going to be pretty soon. We'll have our circus back again. So awesome. Now we want to get into talking about one of the greatest tragedies that happened in the circus. Obviously, in order for us to cover things here on History Goes Bump, there has to be some kind of hauntings going on. Sure. And Kelly, I really had to struggle. I thought, oh, there's got to be all kinds of hauntings connected to the circus. <laughs> I mean, come on, through all these years, all the stuff that's happened, the accidents, blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. It's really difficult. You had to dig deep. I did have to <laughs> dig deep. So here is one that we're going to put on the back end here because I thought it would go well with talking about the history of the circus because it was the worst tragedy that the circus has ever suffered. And that is the Hartford Circus Fire. And this occurred in 1944. The Hartford Circus Fire and the tragic event has left behind a residue that has fed some haunts. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus had set up their tents on Barber Street Fairgrounds at Hartford, Connecticut. There was a keen excitement in the air, as there always was when the circus was in town. Seven hundred employees of the circus had set up the massive big top as well as the other tents and concessions. The canvas tent could accommodate 12,000 people, 
and was 450 feet long and 200 feet wide. There were six poles supporting the tent that weighed 19 tons. Now, there were nearly 8,000 people filing into the Big Top to watch the performances on that hot July 6th day. There were folding chairs for reserved seats and bleachers for open seating. One of the interesting things is when the circus would come to town, you think, oh, that's a huge tent trying to put that thing up. How many workers did they have? Well, a lot of the kids would see the parade coming through town and they'd be like, oh, and they'd follow it down. And then here's all the tents. They're not quite up yet. Well, hey, kids, you want some free tickets to the circus? Exactly. Want to help us put the poles up? Free labor. (laughs) Yeah. And all of a sudden you got all these kids pulling on the ropes to help get those poles up. So they'd get a lot of the people who were in the towns to help them out, too. During the early part of the 1944 season, the circus had experienced three minor fires, which had caused no damage nor hurt anyone. There was no reason to think that today would be a day that would bring one of the most devastating fires in American history. It really was amazing that something like this fire had not happened sooner. Big Top was not fireproofed, and the way that it was waterproofed made it dangerous. Sixty barrels of yellow paraffin wax were boiled and thinned with 6,000 gallons of Texaco white gasoline. Yikes. This mixture was then poured from watering cans and brushed onto the surface of the top of the tent. So we've made it waterproof, but my God, light a match. Oh, golly. And smoking was prevalent. The circus would have been able to get fireproof canvas if they had agreed to perform in military bases, because during this time we have World War II. Ah, right. And the material was a war priority, and so the circus could not get it without making that deal, which they did not. John Ringling North was okay with it, but his cousins were not. So Hmm. it was John Ringling North and his cousins who owned the circus, and they would not agree on it. He's like, let's do the military thing. And they were like, no, big mistake. Yeah. After finding out what they waterproofed it with, (laughs) I can certainly see why that was such a tragic fire. The first act that day was Alfred Court's lion performance. And that was followed by the great Melinda's doing their high wire act. The hobo clown, Emmett Kelly, was delighting children in the crowd. It was during the Melinda's performance that the band leader, Merle Evans, spotted flames. He immediately started the band playing Stars and Stripes Forever, which was a signal to circus employees that there was an emergency. Several buckets of water were thrown at the flames, but they did nothing to put out the fire. The flames moved slowly at first, but a gust of wind blew them up the side of the tent and across the top. The power failed as the ringmaster, Fred Bradna, tried to tell the audience not to panic. When people started seeing flames, they panicked and rushed the exits that were blocked by animal cages and the runway. The Walendas quickly climbed down to the ground to get to safety. Yeah, this fire just started off as a very, very little fire. And it just took off quickly. Employees grabbed knives and sliced open the tent and started pulling children and people out. And terrified parents handed their children over barriers to save them. Folding chairs upended, making it harder for people to get out. Maureen Crickian was 11 years old when she went to the circus in Hartford. She'd gone all by herself. Can you imagine 11 years old? No. And she said of the incident, I remember somebody yelling and seeing a big ball of fire near the top of the tent. And this ball of fire just got bigger and bigger and bigger. By that time, everybody was panicking. The exit was blocked with the cages that the animals were brought in and out with. And there was a man taking kids and flinging them up and over that cage to get them out. I was sitting up in the bleachers and jumped down. I was three quarters of the way up. You jumped down and it was all straw underneath. There was a young man, a kid, and he had a pocket knife and he slit the tent, took my arm and pulled me out. Thank goodness. Bits of burning canvas and paraffin rained down on the crowd. The scene was mass chaos. Within eight minutes of seeing the first flame, the big top collapsed, trapping anyone still inside. Hot paraffin wax burned people, while others either asphyxiated or were trampled to death. Ten minutes from the first flame and the tragedy was basically over. The fire department arrived in time to do basically nothing. The only animals in the tent were the lions, and they got out with only minor burns. Over 700 people suffered injuries and were taken to three different hospitals. 168 people died between the fire and later that week, with half of them being children. Officials tried their best to sort out the bodies, and they were carried to a nearby armory for families to identify. The work was done quickly, and most bodies were removed within an hour and a half. One-third of the victims had to be identified with dental charts. Flags were lowered to half-staff at the state capitol. The circus was supposed to go to New York for its next performance, but instead went back to its winter quarters in Sarasota, Florida. Several circus personnel were brought in for questioning as officials tried to figure out what happened. In the end, they found that a discarded cigarette on some dry grass near the tent started the flames. Citations were issued against the circus for many deficiencies, which included 
Location of the animal shoots, insufficiency of personnel, failure to maintain an organization to fight the fire, failure to flame-proof the location of supply wagons, lack of firefighting equipment, and failure to distribute firefighting equipment. Nine circus employees would be arrested and charged with manslaughter. Seven would be found guilty and given one-year prison sentences. Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey ended up paying out $4 million in claims. Something this tragic has unsurprisingly led to ghost stories and legends. Apparitions were reported soon after the fire at the fairgrounds. A housing project was built nearby after the fire, and many residents claimed that the fairgrounds were haunted. They would hear disembodied weeping and screaming. The most terrifying images would be of flaming spirits running around. A man had recently relocated to Hartford, and one night he claimed to see a boy that looked like he was burning, running past his apartment. A trail of smoke followed the boy, and the man took off after him, thinking that he needed help. The boy ran around a corner, and when the man got there, he could find the boy nowhere. This man had not heard of the fire because he was so new to Hartford. A memorial plaque near the site also plays host to ghosts who hang around it. A school eventually replaced the apartment building, and children and teachers claimed to have weird experiences that they attributed to victims of the fire. We found another haunting connected to a circus. The Gandini Circus began in the early 1900s and had a run that ended in the mid-1930s. The circus would winter in Edmond, Oklahoma, and then spend the rest of the year touring nearby states. The circus was bought by the Clyde Brothers Circus and then the Hagen Brothers Circus, and then left abandoned in an empty wooded lot in Edmond, Oklahoma. It's been featured by Atlas Obscura and is already pretty creepy looking with rusted out cages, broken popcorn machines, and a disintegrating bus. Locals claim that the abandoned grounds are haunted. There are tales of spirit animals in the cages and of ghost clowns wandering those grounds. And I don't know if this really counts, but Circus Circus in Las Vegas is reportedly haunted by several ghosts, most of whom were murdered. None of the performers have died that I'm aware of, so none of these spirits are directly related to that circus. The circus brings great joy, but the Hartford Circus Fire brought great tragedy. Do spirits linger after this fire? Are the abandoned grounds of the Gandini Circus haunted? That That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, boy, did I have fun putting this one together. Absolutely. (laughs) On our next episode, we're going to focus on what was the main feature of the circus, the performers. And those are both the animal and the human. So stick around for our next episode. Looking forward to it. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Kevin, Robert, and Michelle with two L's. Thanks for joining us. We also want to point you guys over to our website, historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did hear from Jamie. She had a bunch of ghost stories to share with us. I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now and finally got all caught up. I wanted to write and tell you a few stories that I have regarding the supernatural. I have a couple that happened to me personally and a couple that happened to family members of mine, specifically my parents. First story is about myself. About 10 or so years ago, I worked as a CNA at a nursing home. I had a married couple on my hall and sadly the wife passed away. Her husband stayed on my hall while they were trying to get him a private room. One day I was in there freshening up his water pitcher and putting clean towels by the sink when I got the distinct urge to move so someone could get behind me. When I looked, there was no one there. There was another instance in this same room with this same resident. I'd taken him to the bathroom. At this facility, the toilets had their own little room. I'd shut the main door to his room to give him some privacy and proceeded to go into the bathroom to help him. While in there, I heard the main door to the room open. Thinking it was my co-worker looking for me, I said, just a second. No sooner had I said that, I peeked around the door to the bathroom to see what she needed and again, there was no one there. I know some people think it was another resident, but it was just too short a period of time between me calling out and looking around the door. If you ask me, I think it's his wife checking in to make sure we're taking care of him. I have no doubt it probably is. Second story, this one happened to my parents. When they first got married, they moved into a house that had a little bit of history. The original owner of the house, his mother-in-law, had lived and died in the basement of the house. Then at some point, the house caught fire and they ended up tearing it down, covering the old foundation and building the house my parents live in on top of it. When my parents moved in, they put a pool table in the basement and there was a small bathroom down there. My mom has told me that a couple of times when they were playing pool down there that she would use the restroom and close the door. Then they'd go back upstairs only to go back down later to find the door to the bathroom wide open. Mind you, neither of them would go down there in the meantime and the only way to get to the basement was through the house. They found that the mother-in-law who had lived in the basement previously didn't like closed doors. 
So they just assumed it was her. Interesting. After that, they would make sure that the door was always left open and they called her grandma. So they'd say, hi, grandma, when they would go down to the basement. Oh, that's sweet. Third story. When I was little, my mom worked for a company who owned an old building here in Kansas City called the Loretto. It was originally built by the sisters of the Loretto and was used as a school for girls. When the company my mom worked for bought it, it was just a creepy old building with a few apartments where some people lived. My mom and her boss also had their offices in this building. My dad was also the unofficial caretaker of the place. He'd go on either a Friday, as he had Fridays off of work in those days, or on a Saturday and mow the grass and just look over things and make sure everything was okay. Occasionally, my mom and I would go with him on Saturdays, and sometimes it was just my dad. Well, I remember him telling me that one of the times he was there alone, he went up into the chapel that they have there so he could cool off. There was a library behind the choir loft that still had books, so he would grab a book and sit down to read. He said this one time he was sitting there for a little bit when he got the feeling that he wasn't alone. He said it wasn't malevolent. It was just the feeling you get when someone walks in a room and you know that they're there without having to look and see them. He never saw anything and the building is said to be haunted. It has since been bought by another company and turned into apartments, office space and event space. So you have to wonder, are they having any? Right. Fourth story. This one also happened to my dad. And interestingly, I mentioned the Birdcage Theater. Mm-hmm. Well, the story is about the Birdcage Theater. Oh, how funny. <laughs> this happened when we were in Tombstone doing a ghost tour of the Birdcage Theater. My mom and I have a tradition of doing ghost tours when we would go on vacation. My dad was never really interested in them, but this time we drug him along with us to the Birdcage. We were in the main room of the theater, and it's a pretty open space. They have things on display, and they allow you to take pictures. And I told you what one of those things is. Most of us, myself included, were walking around looking at the displays and I was taking pictures while listening to our guy talk. At one point, I happened to look over to where my dad was standing and I noticed him rubbing his arm. I didn't think much of it at the time and kept taking pictures and looking at things. Then a little bit later, the guy took us into the back where they had some chairs set up in a U-shape with a table in the middle that had an EMF detector on it. I also happened to notice dog toys on the table. I thought it was odd, so I asked the guide about it. She said, oh, we have a ghost dog. She then proceeded to tell us the story of how the ghost dog came to be there. After the tour, my parents and I were talking about it, and I was looking at all the pictures I took. Then my dad happened to say that when we were in the main area and the guide was talking, he felt someone stroke his arm. He said it felt flirtatious. Ooh. Somebody he couldn't see was hitting on him. Flirty (laughs) ghost. And at the birdcage, that's a possibility. True. There was no one around him, at least not close enough to brush against him, and he was in the middle of the room, not near anything he could have brushed against. Then we got to talking about the ghost dog that's there when he informed us that he was going to sit down in one of the chairs in back before he even heard anything about the ghost dog and he felt something run between his legs. He knew the feeling because their dog does the same thing to him. I'm really curious because it sounds like their whole family is pretty sensitive and I wonder if he doesn't like to go tag along for the ghost tours because he feels things and he's sensitive as well and he's not comfortable with it. I mean, how many of these are like had something in the basement? When he was at the place being a caretaker, now right. they're at the birdcage. A lot of things happening for somebody who's not going and seeking it out. Exactly. Last story. This one also happened to my dad. When I was <laughs> eight, we moved to a new house. This was about three years after my grandfather on my dad's side had passed away. My dad told me that one night after we moved, he woke up in the middle of the night. And my grandpa was standing there by his bed asking where he went, saying that he couldn't find him. Oh, My dad told him that we had moved. Then he was gone. Then my dad went back to sleep. He swears he was wide awake the whole time. That's pretty neat. So Grandpa was just like, hey, where'd you guys go? Yeah. At least he managed to find them. Exactly. And she let me know that she had mentioned in the spectacular crew that she's getting married at a haunted location in Kansas City. Very cool. Called the Loose Mansion. Never heard of it. Maybe we'll have to check it out. Exactly. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Danny Collison, who is also known as OK So New York City, NYC, on Instagram. Give her a follow. She does a lot on New York history. Very cool. She will be buried under an obelisk tombstone, and she was actually at the awards, Kelly, and we didn't get a chance to meet her. I know. I can't believe that. That's insane. I know. I'm so bummed. (laughs) She's like, I didn't know what you look like. And of course, we didn't know anything about her, so we didn't manage to meet up. Thank you so much for your support. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.
left home at the age of 17 and joined Colonel Elliot 15th's Light Brigade. 800 people, 800 people could watch the performances. Ah. <sighs> the tented circus was how it all began. Was no. not how. Was not. <laughs> the tented circus was how it all. Ah. The tented circus was not how it all began. The t- <laughs> Your poor mouth. It's 1030 in the morning and it's not awake. Barnum would redeem himself from the... Barnum would redeem... Barnum would redeem... We redeem himself. We redeem. He's going to redeem himself. <laughs> I saw, I saw wabbit. a wascoey wabbit. <laughs> that wascoey Barnum. <laughs> As we all know, it turns out that the mermaid was actually a mummified monkey's... <laughs> I didn't know that. You didn't? Okay. As we... God. As we all know, it turns out the... Thumb died at the age of 45 in 1883 and never grew taller than 12... 12 feet? Damn. (laughs) That's a really tall little person. (laughs) Really tall little person. 12 (laughs) feet. Holy cow. Stop it. (laughs) This little table's not far enough that I can't reach across and bat that hat (laughs) off your head. You could slap me if you wanted. (laughs) I wouldn't slap you. All right, where was I? A thumb died. Yeah. The circus that four paw run. The circus that four pa four pa 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 pa. That's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how we get through these shows sometimes. <laughs> Agreed. The circus that four paw ran ran. I I want to say run because I'm saying four paw. To facilitate the entrance of the animals to the tent, a high waist. <laughs> I'm dyslexic for words. Apparently. <laughs> a waist-high steel runway was used. 